We're in chapter 15. This is the chapter where King Saul fails to utterly wipe out Amalek. It's a very famous episode. We read it once a year on Shabbat Zachor, which is the Shabbat before Purim. And how is this related to Purim? Well, the villain of Purim is Haman, and Haman comes from Agag, the king of Amalek, who Saul fails to wipe out. So this is a really famous episode, and we started it, we did the first six verses. We saw that even before this war starts, King Saul is having trouble performing this mitzvah. We learned this out from the words of our sages on verse 5, where it says, Saul went to the city of Amalek, and he set an ambush in the valley, Vayarev benachal. The sages say, Vayarev imatzmo, he began to quarrel with himself about this entire mitzvah, comparing it to other mitzvahs of Hashem, mitzvahs like the Eglarufa, the decapacitated calf that you bring to the valley. That's what's learned out from Yeriv Benachal. Nachal means valley. He was thinking of all those mitzvot that express great regard for human life. And now he's supposed to obliterate an entire nation, men, women, children, and animals. It seems to go against the spirit of the Torah, Saul's thinking. Why would God want this? That's what Saul is thinking. Even if it's only in his subconscious, all these thoughts, it's going to affect his performance in fulfilling the commandment of wiping out Amalek. And the last verse we read was verse six, where Saul is talking to the Cani. Now the Cani are converts. They're the descendants of Yitro, and they were Torah scholars, and they were dwelling amongst the Amalekites. And Saul is telling them, listen, when we begin this war against the Amalekites, you're gonna get hurt because in the heat of the battle, we're not gonna be able to separate you from them or distinguish between you and them. So the best thing is just get away now from the Amalekites, depart, suru, rudumipo, get out of here because you're gonna get hurt. And the question we may ask is, what are these Canaanites, these Torah scholars, the descendants of Yitro, what are they doing dwelling amongst the Amalekites? Can't they find a better place to sit and learn Torah? Is this a good place for yeshiva in the land of Amalek? Now, Amalek was dwelling in the land of Israel, in the Negev, in the south of Israel. But still, it does seem a little strange that the Canaanites, out of all the places in Eretz Israel, are setting up their tents of Torah in Amalek territory. So apparently, it was a nice place to learn. The Amalekites weren't bothering them at the time. They let them sit and learn. The Amalekites weren't disturbing them at that time. They were doing their thing. The Canaanite was doing their thing. It was a peaceful coexistence, and it was a nice, peaceful, and tranquil area to learn Torah. Anyway, Rabbi Kahane, in his commentary, raises this question, what are they doing there? And he says the following. The rabbi asks, don't the Canaanites, who are Jewish scholars, they know that it's an obligation to erase the Zecher of Amalek? And if it's a mitzvah to wipe out Amalek, all the more so that it would be forbidden to dwell amongst them. And here they are, dwelling amongst the Amalekites. So the rabbi says that unfortunately, sometimes the motivation to learn Torah overrides the motivation to observe the mitzvot. What does that mean? Well, these Jews found a nice place to learn Torah. It was peaceful. It was quiet. The Amalekites at that time weren't giving them any problems. So they preferred sitting amongst Amalek. And that's the gullus of the gullus. That's the most impure place you can be, even though it's in Eretz Israel and so forth. You're dwelling amongst the Amalekites. What's more impure than that? I mean, can't they find a place in Eretz Israel a little less contaminated than Amalek? And then Rabbi Kahana says, that's what's happening today. And I'll read it and translate. And there are Torah scholars in our day who prefer dwelling in the Toma of the Gullus and amongst the Gentiles instead of coming to Eretz Israel and learn because it's comfortable over there. 
And if it wasn't for the chesed that the Keni did for the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt, as Saul says to them, you have done kindness for Israel when we came out of Egypt. And we mentioned last time what that kindness was. If it wasn't for that, they would have been wiped out along with Amalek. And the Rav concludes, And what will those Torah scholars say who sit in the Toma, in the impurity of the exile? What will they say when the Galut starts to implode, like it always did for the Jew, wherever he was? When that starts to happen, then what's he going to say? So that's an interesting analogy. The rabbi is comparing the Keni sitting amongst the Amalekites here in verse 6 to the Jews who sit in Galus and learn Torah and don't realize what kind of danger they're in. Okay, now with the Keni out of the way, Saul can attack Amalek, and that's what verse 7 tells us. And Saul attacked or smote Amalek all the way from Chavilat to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. So the Tanakh gives the geographical region where Amalek was dwelling, and the verse says that Saul smote that area. Okay, so far so good. Verse 8, That's not so good. And he took Agag, king of Amalek, alive. And all the people of Amalek, he totally destroyed with the sword. Verse 9, And Saul and the people, had pity on Agag or spared Agag. We'll look at that word in a minute, Vayachmol. And the people spared not only Agag, and they also spared the best of the sheep, and the cattle, and the fatlings and the fatted goats, and then all the good stuff. They did not want to destroy. And all which was feeble and worthless, and of little value, that they utterly destroyed. So we have to look at this verse in depth because this is the sin of Saul right here in verse 9. They spared the king, they spared the best of the animals, and they destroyed the crummy stuff. Now that's not what the commandment was. They're supposed to destroy everything. Now verse 9 says in Hebrew, And Saul and the people, Chamal an Agag, the king, and the best of the animals. Now I use the English word here, they spared them. But the connotation of chamal is not to spare them just, but they had pity on them. Chamal usually implicates pity or compassion. So that would mean they had compassion on the king and on the best of the animals, and they didn't have compassion on the rest of the spoil that was of little value. What kind of chemla is that? What kind of compassion is that? And that's why when I translated it, I used the word spared. Because this doesn't really seem like compassion. Yet the word chamal, in many instances, is interpreted as compassion or mercy. And the commentator of the Malbim explains it. And the Malbim is great with the Hebrew language. That's part of his expertise. And that's what makes his commentary so great. And he says like this, there's all kind of words in Hebrew for mercy or pity. And they're not exact synonyms. Like we say mercy, pity. To us, it's about the same thing. But in Hebrew, every single word has a different connotation. So in Hebrew, you have the word chamal. That's what we have here in verse 9. You have chus, lachus on somebody. You have lerachem on somebody. That's three words for mercy. Chamal, chus, verachem. And the Malbim says, there's a difference between those words. And the Malbim explains the slight difference between lachus, verachem, to have mercy or to have pity. And now we get to our word, chamal. 
What does that mean? The Malbim says chamal is when you spare something because in your mind, it's something that's too good to waste. It's like in Hebrew when you say chaval love. Ah, what a pity to waste it. So that explains the verse. It's not that they had pity on Agag and the best of the animals, but chamal love, they were saying, chaval love, it's a pity that it goes to waste. And the Malbim brings a great raya, a great proof for what he's saying. After David sins in the Bathsheba story, he's approached by Natan the prophet, and Natan gives the famous parable of the rich man and the poor man. And the rich person, who had plenty of sheep, he didn't want to give the guests from his own, so he took a sheep from the poor guy, who only had one little lamb, who he raised and coddled, and the rich man didn't take from his own, because the verse says, which means that when the traveler came to the rich man, he refrained from taking one of his own sheep and instead he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man. Now you can't translate and he had pity on his own sheep. That's not pity. Just like in our verse, we can't say that Saul and the people had mercy or pity on Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen because obviously that's not pity. If you're going to have pity, have pity on the weak stuff, on the women and the children. So obviously that first word in verse 9, can't really mean pity or mercy. It's got to mean he spared them because he said, it's a pity to just wipe out all this spoil and kill it when it's such good merchandise. And obviously it's a major sin because they were supposed to wipe out everything, to wipe out the zecher of Amalek, anything having to do with Amalek. And the Ralbag on this verse brings another dimension to it. And he says the whole point of this mitzvah in wiping out Amalek is to take revenge against them, to do nekama what he calls Likichat Nekama, to carry out vengeance against them for what Amalek did to us when we came out of Egypt. And again, what did they do? They attacked us when we came out. They cooled off the boiling bathtub so other nations could jump in. They attacked us from behind where the women and children were, where we were most vulnerable. And therefore, the whole point of fighting Amalek is to take vengeance against them for what they did. The minute you start taking from their spoil and getting enjoyment from their stuff, deriving benefit from the spoil that you captured, you ruin the whole point of the mitzvah because it doesn't look like nikama anymore. It looks like you're just trying to get some free stuff. Suddenly it doesn't look like it's Shem Shamayim. And then the Ralbach says something interesting about what happens in the story of Purim, and I'll read it. And it seems to me that that's the reason that the Jewish people in the days of Mordechai and Esther they were careful not to take the spoil from their enemies. Their enemies were Amalek. So that's pretty interesting. I don't know how many people pay attention to it, but the verse says very quietly there that when the Jews took vengeance on their enemies over there in Shushan and then outside Shushan, the verse quietly says there, they did not touch the property of the enemy. They didn't take from the spoil. And that's to show that their entire motivation was one of nekama, vengeance, to do to them what they try to do to us. And Saul and the Jewish people were supposed to do the same thing here with Amalek. They're supposed to wipe out the memory of Amalek. And together with that, it's a war of nekama, of vengeance. And so you don't take anything from them. You don't enjoy any of their property. You don't derive benefit from their property. That takes away from what you're trying to do here. It takes away from the Kiddush Hashem and the message that you're trying to project. Now, don't get me wrong. In 99% of the wars, we do take the spoil because taking the spoil, the property of the uh, defeated enemy, that's the ultimate humiliation when you take his stuff. When you walk away with the donkeys and the sheep and the bicycle of your enemy and he sees that, that's the ultimate victory. That shows you defeated him. But there are some wars 
like this one here, like the battle on Jericho, we are not allowed to touch any of the spoil because it's a special kind of war. It's a war of total Kiddush Hashem and it plays by different rules. Okay, let's move on to verse 10 and we'll see obviously that Hashem is not happy about this. And it says in verse 10, And the word of God came to Shmuel and Hashem said, I regret that I have made Saul the king. Why? Because he has turned away from me. And he has not fulfilled my word or he has not carried out my instructions. So that's what God tells Shmuel. And what is Shmuel's reaction? And Shmuel was very upset. Which means he cried out to the Lord or more correctly, he prayed to the Lord all night. So we see that the prophet Shmuel is taking this news really hard. He's very connected to Saul. That's his student. He put everything into Saul. It's like his own son. And the verse just shows how upset Shmuel is. He cried out all night. He's taking it personally. What's he crying out? What's he praying? He's up all night praying that Hashem will forgive Saul. Rabbi Kahana writes in his commentary, Shmuel hikir et Shaul. Shmuel knows Saul. And he knows the natural good that's in him. So he's crying out to Hashem that Hashem will take that into account. But the Lord knows that it's precisely somebody like this who insists on being good, who's stubborn about it. And that good is derived from his own intellect. That is, those positive attributes he has isn't derived from accepting the oak of heaven, but it's something he was born with. Somebody like that, somebody like that can easily turn into an evil person. Because again, his midot, even if they're good ones, are not within the parameters of the halacha, somebody like that could become very dangerous. And indeed, Saul does become dangerous to himself and to other people. And the Abarbanel writes on these words, Vayechar Shmuel, and Shmuel was very upset, or Shmuel was very angry. The Abarbanel explains that Shmuel was thinking, okay, the first time he sinned in the Gilgal, when he didn't wait for the prophet for the full seven days in that war against the Philistines, Shmuel always had hope that through praying and through pleading to Hashem, Saul's kingdom could be resurrected. That is, if Saul did tshuva, for not passing that test, a very difficult test it was, he didn't wait seven days for the prophet back in chapter 13. Okay, that happened. Shmuel's thinking, okay, we could do tshuva for that. But now that Shmuel sees that Saul has committed another sin, he was very upset because he realizes now that we're at a point of no return. Saul's malchut will not be able to recover from this. As the Al-Barbanel says, who was Sif Chet al-Pesha, he was already on shaky ground when he didn't pass that test back in chapter 13 of not waiting the seven days. Now after this sin, it's all over. There's no backseas now. And that's why Shmuel is so upset. And the Abarbanel continues, Because Shmuel loved Saul with all his heart and all his soul. Since Saul was so handsome, He was a great warrior. And Rav Pa'alim, which means he was versatile. And he was the creation of Shmuel's hands. That is, Shmuel tutored him, nurtured him. Shmuel anointed him king over Israel. And he loved him like an artist loves his own creation. And that's why he was so upset. And he was distressed. When he saw that Hashem has had it with Saul, 
Shmuel took it very hard. So we see when it says in the verse of Yechal Shmuel, and Shmuel was upset, and he cried out all night, you don't take that lightly. If the verse has to say that, then we know it's a big deal. And the verse wants us to realize how hard Shmuel took this news. Now before moving on to the next verse, it's important to discuss the beginning of this verse we just read. It opens, V'nichamti she'emlachti et Shaul, which will say in English, I regret that I have made Saul the king. The problem is that the word used in Hebrew here is nichamti, nichamti shehem lachti shaul. And nichamti is really the opposite of regret. Nichamti means to take comfort in something. So the verse is really saying, I took comfort that I anointed Saul. That wouldn't make any sense that Hashem was comforted by making Saul the king. So in order to make the verse make sense, it's translated as, I regret that I made Saul the king. So why do we use the word nichamti, nechama, instead of mitcharet, to regret? The Bible purposely uses the opposite word, and that's called Lashon Tzagi Nohor, where we use the word which means the very opposite. Now, why do we do that? Because we don't want to have inside the Bible a verse where Hashem says, I regret something. Because people are going to say, how can Hashem regret something? Hashem knows what's going to happen later. He can't regret. So in order not to write that Hashem regrets something, that will raise issues where people will say, what, Hashem regrets something? He doesn't know what's going to happen? In order not to get into all that, the word uses nichamti, the opposite word is used, I'm consoled that I made Saul the king, which again is the opposite idea. And we have the same exact thing before Hashem brings a flood into the world. He says, nichamti, I regret that I created the world. Hashem regrets that he created the world. That would raise issues. People would say, what, Hashem can regret? So the word in Hebrew is nichamti, I'm comforted that I created the world. But Rabbi Kahana writes in his commentary that it's true, this is Lashon Tzagi Nohor. We use the opposite word. But in a certain way, it's true. Hashem does take consolation and comfort that he chose Saul and that he created the world, even though it's going to be destroyed. Why? Because he's about to do something about it. He's going to bring a flood and create the world from anew. And with Saul, he's going to replace him with David. So there is an aspect of Nichamti. Hashem does take consolation and comfort in the fact that he's going to do something about the situation. He's not just regretting it and saying, oi vavoy, but he's going to take action to fix it. And that's the nechama. That's the comfort. Okay, now Shmuel's next move is to go over there where Shaul is. He's got to go pretty far down south. And he has to now rebuke Saul and give over to him what's the message of Hashem now. And you have to realize Saul doesn't even think he did anything wrong. Shmuel is going to have to go and tell him, you did something very wrong. So it says like this in verse 12, And Shmuel got up early in the morning and went out to meet Saul. So on his way to meet Saul, it says the following, And somebody said to Shmuel that his Shmuel is seeking out Saul, and now someone's going to tell him where he is. So somebody said to him, Saul has come to the Carmel, and he has built a yad. Now a yad could be a monument. It could be an altar. We'll look at that in a minute. But this person is telling Shmuel that Saul was in the Carmel. He built something. And then Saul turned and went down to the Gilgal. Okay, so Shmuel now knows where Saul is. And in the next verse, he's going to meet up with him. But this verse certainly seems superfluous. I mean, who needs it? It doesn't add anything to the story. We could have just said that Shmuel went and he met up with Shaul. This verse is just like an interlude where Shmuel is on his way to meet Saul. He apparently asked somebody, have you seen him? And this person tells Shmuel, yeah, I saw him. 
He was in Carmel, he built a monument or he built an altar and then he turned and went to the Gilgal. So when you see a verse like this, a verse that's a little peculiar and it's not really clear why it's here and it's not something that's imperative to the narrative of the story, you know that it's packed with secret meanings. So let's look what Rashi says. A man told Shmuel that Saul was Matziv lo Yad. He constructed something, Matziv lo Yad. What did he construct? So Rashi says the following. He was building an altar for himself. And Rashi continues, and this is the same altar that in a couple hundred years from now, Elijah the prophet in the book of Kings in chapter 18, there's a verse there that says, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been harus, which had been ruined or torn down. Now what's going on here? What's the connection between the altar that Saul built and the altar that Elijah the prophet is going to repair a couple hundred years later? Rashi's saying it's the same altar. But what's the connection? Well, let's remember, what was the situation when Eliyahu and Avi, Elijah the prophet, repaired that altar, an altar that had been worn down or torn down? That was at Har Carmel, the famous story in Har Carmel. You could check it out in chapter 18 or listen to my Shiwa there, where Elijah the prophet was going head to head against 400 priests of the Baal. And he brought down fire from the heavens, which consumed his sacrifice. And the people chanted, Hashem Hu Elohim, Hashem Hu Elohim. It's a very dramatic story that happened on Har Carmel. And it's hinted here because the man tells Shmuel that Saul has come to the Carmel. But what Rashi is saying here is that the altar that Elijah used in his famous Ma'amad at Har Carmel, it's the same altar that Saul built right here in our chapter. And it's called Hamazber HaRus, the broken down altar, because many years have passed since the days of Saul to the days of Elijah. So of course this altar needed repair. And Rabbi Kahana makes the connection between what's going on here with Saul and the event hundreds of years later at Har Carmel with Elijah the prophet. And the Rav says like this, Elijah purposely wanted to use the old altar that Saul had used. And he wanted to repair that altar, not just physically, but a spiritual repair. Because the people in the days of Elijah were combining service to the Lord with service to the Baal. They were not worshiping Hashem exclusively, but it was a little bit of Torah, a little bit of idol worship. And that's why Elijah said to them right before he brought the fire down, how long are you going to vacillate on two different opinions? You got to choose. If you want the Baal, go for the Baal. If you want the Shem, then go for a Shem. But don't play this game of being in both worlds. You got to choose. And Rabbi Kahana says, and that's exactly the problem with Saul here. Saul is guilty of the same sin. He's vacillating on two different opinions. He's also post He's dancing at two different weddings. On one hand, he serves the Lord, there's Avodat Hashem, but he's also guilty of Avodat Sichlo. He also believes in his own intellect, where he's trying to outsmart Hashem and thinks he knows better than the Torah about mercy and compassion and all the things we've spoke about above. And so the rabbi explains here that the altar of Saul is Harus. It's a broken down altar, not because physically it's broken down because all the time that has passed, but it was always broken because it was not exclusively an altar to Hashem, but rather he was planning to use that altar to sacrifice the animals of Amalek. So it was Lidchatchila from the very outset, a Mazbeach Harus, a broken and faulty altar. And so when it says at Har Carmel in chapter 18 in Kings 1 that Eliyahu repaired the broken altar, besides the physical renovation that was needed, he was going to make it an altar just for Hashem, exclusive worship to Hashem without any foreign influences, without using 
using our own intellect to think we know better. He did the tikkun on that altar. He got the altar right. And so we see now verse 12, which seemed like an innocuous kind of verse, since it doesn't really add to the plot, we see hidden in that verse are some very profound concepts. And in the next verse, and in the next shiur, Shmuel is going to confront Saul, and we'll see what Saul's response is, what his excuses are, and what Shmuel's response to that. Stay tuned.